healing the wounds of the heart. I want you to go to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. And I've chosen this text because it really does point out some things that I want to cover today. And I thought it'd be a good jump off point. I'm not going to get into the text as such. But it does point out a couple of things I want to, I want to show you. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse number 6. Of course, we know that Israel, they were in bondage uh, to Babylon. They were held captive there. Uh, Jerusalem was destroyed uh, because of their, their sin, their transgression against God. And now the Lord let them come back. And Nehemiah is here. Uh, Ezra's here. And they're starting to reestablish their worship again to God. And there's a lot of baggage here. A lot of baggage. These people are full of baggage. They're full of the, 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 what, what's happened to them over the last 70 years and why it brought them to the place that they are at. And so what's happening is Ezra uh, is, is bringing the people up and they're reading the word of God and they're actually preaching and teaching the people the scriptures. And it's having a profound impact on Israel at this time. So let's read this. It says in verse 6, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all people answered, Amen and Amen. So what that means is, it's okay for you to say Amen in the church service. Do you understand that? We got biblical permission right here in the book of Nehemiah, all right? It says, and the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting of their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And there's a whole bunch of names here that I'm not going to mention. And these guys caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense, and caused them to understand the reading. That is what we do here in the preaching time. That's what the preacher does in the pulpit. They open up the scriptures, they read, and then they make the sense of the truth of the word of God. They did it way back there in Nehemiah's day. And then it goes on to say, and Nehemiah, which is, uh, which is the church, Shatha, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, this day is holy unto the Lord your God, mourn not nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. So it was convicting. It reminded them of their errors and their weaknesses and their mistakes and the things that they did and dishonoring God and transgressing his law. And they just got this overwhelming uh, sorrow that took over. And Nehemiah stands up and says, no, I'm not allowing you to do this. What we're going to do is we are going to rejoice. Because we're on the other side now. Amen. We're not, we're not sitting back there in Jerusalem before Nebuchadnezzar came. We've been, we've been restored. We've been brought back to Jerusalem now. And so there's a time where you've got to get past your past mistakes, your past sins. And he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy unto the Lord, neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy, 
neither be ye grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just ask you, Lord, that you just be with our lesson tonight, that you would just bless it and help it, Lord, to find a place in our hearts tonight. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord had a great purpose for Israel, but they had failed greatly in their past. When God's word was read and taught, they began to weep. Nehemiah tells them not to be grieved but, but, and not to continue in their sorrow, but to allow the Lord's joy to return to them because this would be their strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And this is what needs to take place in our lives. Many times we go through things, we have wounds, we have hurts, and every time the preacher preaches, it seems all we're doing is just going through the same motions of experiencing the failure over again, instead of making the right choice when we hear the word of God being preached. And that is to move on, accept the forgiveness that God has given us, and move on and do the right thing. Amen? We don't need to continue on in our sorrow all our days. Joy is our strength. And if we want to get past the wounds of our life, we have to have joy restored. It's so important. So, joy and maturity. These two things connect profoundly in the believer's life. And I want to look at this today. And we're going to look at some very interesting concepts here. Now, number one, what is maturity? What is maturity? I remember growing up, you know, all the, the girls would always look at the boys and say, oh, you're so immature, <laughs> you know, because they were mature and we weren't. Did you guys experience that? Is that just what girls do? <laughs> Call the boys immature, uh, you know, but you know what? We probably were. <laughs> we were probably immature. And so maturity, what is it? Letter A, wounded people struggle to act their age. They struggle to act their age. Wounded people do not seem to behave in a mature fashion, but have childish tendencies that relate them to a five-year-old wanting something they cannot have. They many times have developed tactics to manipulate those in their lives to get what they think they want, what they think is going to make them feel better because of the wounds that they have. And so they use child tactics child tactics one should never give in to a child's fleshly tactics nor someone that has been using that has been wounded using the same childish tactics uh, children do it all the time they'll have a temper tantrum these days most parents give in to the tantrum oh, oh let's let's make them quiet well that's exactly why they're doing it they're making a fuss so you'll be embarrassed, and you'll just give them what they want so they can be quiet. But that's not the right solution, because it never brings them to maturity. They continue on in that immature behavior, so you have to stop it. You say, no, you're not getting it. I always tell my kids, you don't get stuff that way here. You don't get stuff that way here. I want this. You don't get stuff that way here. <laughs> you know, if you want something, that ain't the way to get it. And so you're not going to get it until you learn how to be responsible and mature in the way that you approach your father and your mother. Amen? And that's the way we have to teach our kids. That's the way we have to teach those that have developed 
bad behavioral patterns because of wounded hearts. Amen? It's important. Otherwise, they continue in it. They're getting what they think they want. But really, what they're getting is just just a very quick fix. And it doesn't take long, maybe a day, and they're using the same tactic again because their, their peace does not continue on. It's just a, a flash in the pan type of thing, you know. So what they do is they initiate pouting. Uh, they hide. You want to pull up that slide there, son? It doesn't seem like mine is. Pouting, hiding, the silent treatment. Do you realize that the silent treatment in marriage is a sign that you, there's something wrong in your heart? And so these are all tactics. So when you, when you shut your relationships off because of the way you feel, what's happening is you're using a child tactic to get what you want. Amen? And you may not even know what you want, but you're wanting something to stop. You're wanting, uh, don't, don't require responsibility of me, whatever. Whatever the issue is, you feel that shutting down the relationship is the best course of action. But it's not. It's a very foolish way to go. And so sneaking around, some people, instead of being honest about their life, they'll, especially if you're a child in a home or whatever, you'll start you know, leaving out the windows and coming back through the window and sneaking around. Adults do this. Wives do this to husbands. Husbands do this to wives. They manipulate to get what they want. Um, they're doing whatever they think will get them what they want, and they throw tantrums. <laughs> Adults, yes. They shouldn't, because somebody should have straightened them out by now, but they still do. And you still can throw a tantrum to get your way. That is an immature way to handle your problems. All right? Immaturity. So letter B, what are the marks of mature people? What are the marks? Number one, mature people remain relational in difficult situations. Say, well, what does that mean? That means what I just mentioned to you about shutting down. A mature person won't shut down the relationship when the pressure is on. They will talk. They will keep it open. They'll keep the conversation going. They won't run away. They won't hide. They won't blow up. They won't uh, have a tantrum because they don't want to deal with it. That's all immature behavior. But a mature person is going to continue on in that relationship even though the situation is difficult, whether they did something wrong, whether there's some problem they have to address. They're just trying to face it as a mature individual. Amen? So does that ring a bell here? (laughs) Does that not happen even within our marriages today? Some of these immature tactics, that's been brought up from the past. Those are past techniques that we have learned in dealing with our pain, dealing with our problems, and trying to cover them, trying to uh, escape them being triggered anymore, because that's what happens. When somebody approaches us and we get angry, it's because we're being triggered. That wound is being opened again to us. And that lie that's in there is producing all kinds of ugly feelings. And we don't like that. We obviously don't. It's not like you enjoy that. But what happens is instead of dealing with a lie, we just try to cover up the lie, try to bury it again, 
by running away from what we think is the source of the problem, and that's our husband or wife or the situation or the difficulty. We think somehow that is what's causing my pain when all that is doing is, is actually triggering what's already in you. Amen? I always tell people when, we, when I counsel them, I say usually what's going to happen is if you commit to dealing with this kind of stuff, before you meet me in the office, and this has happened more times than I can even remember, you know, that day something will happen in the morning at work. God will trigger them. God will trigger them. He's trying to show them that there's something wrong in you. And usually when they walk in my office, they are raw. <laughs> you know, I just went through this today. That's good. Sit down. Let's talk about it, <laughs> you know. Because in order for you to deal with it, you've got to face what you just went through there. Well, no, no, I don't want to. And then they, then they just shut down. They become numb again. Well, now you've just shut the door. There's no way to get re- resolution with it. You've got to be able to face it. Enough running. Enough shutting down. That's why many people turn to drugs. They'll turn to alcohol. They'll turn to drugs. They'll turn to prescription medicine. Anything to numb out the feeling that they get when they get triggered. Amen? But that's why I said addictions come out of vows. I'll take care of that. I'll deal with this. (laughs) No, that's not the way it works. Amen? All that does is bring you into a further bondage. Now you're addicted, and the devil's got you in his hooks, and he's just pulling you down. Next thing is you start getting thoughts. What are those thoughts? What's the use in even living? Suicidal thoughts. That's Satan's final tactic. He's a liar and the father of it, and the Bible says he's a murderer from the beginning. He wants to kill us all. Amen? And you'll get your hand to do it what he does so mature people letter a when a difficult situation arises one that is wounded with lies will break down relationally with others they'll begin to shut down blow up um, or they'll they'll shut down or blow up uh, and shut down or they'll shut down and blow up later so sometimes they blow up and shut down and sometimes they shut down then later they'll come back up and blow up. You see, (laughs) these are tactics. (laughs) It all depends how they operate, (laughs) you know. Some people are very on the edge. As soon as something happens, they blow up. Then after they blow up, they see the, the person is trying to deal with it. Then they shut down. They run away. Or what they'll do is they will see the situation. They'll just shut down. They'll run away. And then they'll brood down there because the pain is so it's brought up and they're all they're thinking is they are the reason why i'm feeling this way and so they run back up the stairs or they run into the hallway or they run to where you're at let me tell you (laughs) now they come and blow up you see these are all tactics they're relational problems so many times you get people coming into an office they're saying oh we got marriage problems when in all reality it's because simply someone is not dealing with their wounds That's why I strongly encourage you, before you get married, deal with your wounds. In fact, some people get married because of their wounds. And who they marry is because of the wounds. So you got to be careful. 
Because you can choose the wrong person because of the wounds that you have. Because you think this person somehow is going to be best for my wounds. <laughs> or she can't see the real me that I'm hiding. She's oblivious to it. Well, sooner or later, after a decade or two, the truth will come out. It's going to happen. That's when usually the divorces happen, the marriage breakups and so forth, when the real you uh, is exposed, the real problems. All right? Um, So they may lose eye contact. Uh, They may say mean, hurtful things in that disconnected state. I don't know if you've ever realized this when you're dealing with someone and it, it seems like nothing you say is registering. You're trying to say something and it's just like it's just bouncing off their, and they just keep talking and talking and talking because that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to protect themselves from you triggering them again, you see. And so it's very important we see this, these, uh, these tendencies in, in our lives. Now let it be, it will take very little to cause relational breaks with, with these people that are, that are wounded like this. It's like, man, I can't, and, and the, the relationship, and I've seen this happen so often, is that marriages, and I've had people even use this terminology, it feels like I'm walking on eggshells. They say that very terminology. <laughs> what they're saying is, very little has to take place in order for a blow-up to take place. So it feels like I'm maneuvering. Every day I get up out of bed, I got to maneuver. I can't say the wrong thing. I can't go to the wrong, the wrong place, whatever it may be, because my spouse is going to blow up. Amen. Or back up or the silent treatment or whatever it is. And really, you know, that will destroy your marriage. Unless you become wise and begin to understand it's not you. You know, because a husband or a wife, they can both start going crazy because they I don't know what's going on here. Am I that bad? And they begin to question their identity. And now Satan begins to work in their heart to develop a stronghold because of this other person and how, how, how drastic they respond to the problems that, that arise. It must be me, you know. Many times abuse, people that are abused, they end up their first lie they have to to counteract is the fact that it must be something about me. They did this because of me. And that's what Satan does. He wants to destroy everybody. (laughs) He wants to destroy the abuser, but he also wants to destroy the victim. And so he comes in later and blames the victim for what the abuser did, you know. And so that's one of the first things you, if you're helping people, if they've gone through abuse, you can probably mark it down they're probably blaming themselves in some way. Amen? And so you have to take that. You say, no, (laughs) that was not your fault. But this is a very touchy thing because there is something that is their fault. Now, what is their fault? What is their fault is the way they respond to problems and pressure. They, They develop that strategy, all right? So it's not your fault what somebody else has done to you, but it is your fault how you process what they've done to you, and how you handle it later. Because if you've got an emotional problem because of what's happened to you, it's not because of what happened to you, it's because of the way you processed it. It's within your power. 
And I always tell people, and it's hard to tell people this that have gone through stuff. So you, you tell me to blame myself, and oh, then they trigger, bam, <laughs> you know. And so it's, I got to be very careful when you're maneuvering through something like that with somebody that has gone through. But they've got to come to the point where they face it that you're feeling this way because of your choice. Your choice. And then I try to explain to them that that's a good thing. And they say, well, why? Because if it wasn't your choice, you can't change. But if it's your choice, you can rechoose. Amen. If you're the one that made this happen, if you're the one that chose this way, then you can rechoose a better way. And it has nothing to do with anybody else that's involved in your life. All you need is you and God. And you can come to perfect freedom. So it's a positive thing. But the devil comes at them and says, no, it's a negative thing, <laughs> you know, to take responsibility. Responsibility is the key to freedom. It really is. If you can't take responsibility for your actions, you're in bondage for the rest of your days. And it's sad, but it's true, you know. And I feel sorry for your family. I feel sorry for your husband, your wife, children, because you know what? They're walking on eggshells. What's going to happen now to trigger the next emotional outburst, the next uh, issue to take place in the home? And so let her see, there should, be, there should be nothing someone does that will cause us to break down relationally if we are mature in the truth. That means it's like this. Someone that gets triggered as they walk into a situation, if we are at peace with God and we've dealt with our inner wounds, we can walk into a very volatile situation and have perfect peace. Just like Jesus did. He was nailed to the cross. <laughs> he was, I mean, you, there's nobody here that has gone through one one-hundredth of what Jesus went through that day. Yet he went through it in perfect peace. And not only that, he was able to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. No triggering, no reaction. And this is the problem. We react. We're always reacting. That's a part of our defense. We're reacting to stuff. That's not how you deal with things. Jesus didn't react. He responded. He responded. Uh, he, he stopped. He looked at the situation, and he took it, and himself, his future, and everything that he is, and he delivered it up to the righteous judge. And then because he did
It's a split personality. So basically, <clears throat> it's a spiritual problem based in a wounded heart where you create an alter personality to such an extent that the other one is totally hidden. And you go to the world and they'll call it schizophrenia. Split personality. It's demonic. You understand that? So <clears throat> that's the way the flesh operates. Create separate persons to deal with protecting the pain. Okay? And that's what we do. All on, we all do it on some level. So we can all be called, we can all be labeled with a disorder by the psychi- psychiatric world. I am, I do have a disorder. I've read the book and I qualify. One of them is you don't, you don't uh, believe in disorders. Is a disorder. So I at least have that one. <laughs> There's many more. <laughs> Folks, what I'm saying is you want to go to the world you want them to diagnose you, pop a pill in your mouth, and feel better about yourself. Do what you want to do. I'm not here to pop pills. I'm here to give you something that came from heaven. From a real solution. Not a pharmaceutical company that makes billions of dollars for the love of money. It's a free gift to every man. We can all have freedom and victory. Through Christ, that's my message, I stick to it. Amen? Oh, but what kind of training have you had? Just this. Just this. <laughs> By their fruit you will know them. So some put on the tough guy act. Some put on an oversensitive act. They become oversensitive, <laughs> you know. Some walk around like they're numb. Nothing hurts me. Nope. Doesn't bother me a bit. This is who they're pretending they are. This kind of person that doesn't get hurt by anybody. Uh, then there's some like act like a victim. Oh, vic- the victim mentality is very, very dangerous. That locks you into a lifetime of pain. You're not a victim. Now, you may have been victimized. <laughs> That's true. But you can't continue on as a, as a victim for the rest of your life. You can say, I was victimized. I was a victim in this act. But I'm not a victim in my solution. I'm a victor. Amen? Victorious. Not victim. All right? Letter B, mature people are the same person no matter who they are with. And I already mentioned this. I get people all the time. I, sometimes I see a different person than you do. <laughs> Amen? Are we talking about the same person here? Oh, preacher. he. You're not helping. Folks, if there's one person you can feel safe to be around who you are, it's me. Because I understand. I understand what people have gone through. I've heard things that would make you shake. If anything you can tell me, it's probably something I've already heard. (laughs) Amen? Don't worry about it. You don't need to pretend. Don't need to pretend somehow I need to impress preachers. I don't want them to think badly of me. All I know is we all have wounds We all have problems, and we all need help. Amen? And I'm no better than you. You're no better than me. Amen? Keeps it right at the ground level. Let her see a mature person lives with joy, 
a false personality lives with pseudo joy. You know what pseudo joy is? It's a false joy. It's not real. It's moments of happiness, right? I'm re- I do really well when everything is lining up the way I like it. Then all of a sudden I'm super spiritual. <laughs> but then if all of a sudden I don't have money or something happens and all of a sudden, oh, I've got no joy again. It's called the roller coaster Christianity. Amen? That's not the way God designed you to be. He wants you to have joy constantly because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Amen? Joy is a constant hope concerning the future. It's a constant hope even though circumstances have turned totally upside down. Even though your bank account somehow has just became empty and in the negative. Even though you went to the doctor and they gave you a terrible diagnosis. Joy is a prospect of the future that is consistent and constant. Because it's going to be okay. Because it's based in your God. It's based in who He is and what He can do. Not what your flesh can do. If your flesh controls it, then it's pseudo joy. Amen. Then it's like, one day, okay, I need to make myself feel better. I start drinking the alcohol, popping the pills. Oh, I'm doing great, preacher. I'm super spiritual today. But tomorrow morning you'll wake up and you're going to hit the ground. It's because it's pseudo. It's a false. It's a satanic attempt at joy, which is a poor attempt at joy. Now, based on brain science, this is very interesting, brain science research, your core personality is located in the front of your brain behind your right eye, right there. So if I'd poke you in the eye, I could change who you are. Maybe that'd be a new therapy. Come meet my office. (laughs) Healed. (laughs) No, that's not the way it works. It'd probably mess you up more than help you. But, But think about this. Your personality, it's based on what's happening right behind your right eye here. And your joy center of the brain is in the same location. That means when you are being who God made you to be, you're full of joy. If you've got a pseudo joy, you are not being who God created you to be. So I'll preach, well, that's a little bit too scientific. Well, your brain is scientific. I mean, if you poked something in your brain, you'd change. (laughs) You understand that? You wouldn't be the same. So God created this thing to function. And all my emotions and everything like that is connected in here. And if I mess with it, it changes me. Many people have been in accidents. They say, well, he's never been the same since. They've had a... The personality changed. They got a good pop in the front of their their brain there. And it damaged that part of their brain. So you think about this. That's why people get aggressive too sometimes when they have a damage, uh, brain damage. That joy center is gone. (laughs) Amen? I mean, it's a hard thing to comprehend and I, I don't pretend to know it. But folks, it does point out a very interesting fact. That when my personality is functioning the way God wants it to, my joy is functioning the way God wants it to function. All right? And we need that. We're designed to be joyous every day. If, you're, if you think 
that waking up in the morning and being miserable all day is somehow normal for God. It's not. You're an abnormal Christian. And many of us are a lot of the time. We're abnormal. We say, well, I need revival. Well, what is revival? (laughs) Revival is just simply you getting to the state of normalcy. It's just you getting to be what God wants you to be. It's not some super spiritual thing that touches you and you float around. Uh, Revival is just you becoming who God wants you to be. That's why many revivals are, are marked by people getting right with other people. Sins against others. My friend in Kenora, he was, uh, his uncle was the pastor of the church in Steinbach when that big revival took place. And they began to, it started in a little church. And it ended up being where they had the biggest building in the whole city packed out for weeks on end. People coming. And he said, what took place is people that would come, they would go to the police stations and confess their crimes. They would get things right. They would, they, would, they would reconcile and they would pay restitution. All these things, what they were doing is getting back to normal. All your sins are driving you down and stealing away from you the joy and the person that God wants you to be. So a state of revival is just simply you being who God made you to be. And with some of us, being who we're supposed to be, we haven't seen that person probably since we were seven years old. Six years old. You know what, child, I was thinking about this. I was looking at Vivian, and I was looking at some of the pressures we have to go through, financial, different things. You know what she does? <laughs> She's having a good old, I'm going to go jump on the trampoline. <laughs> you know, today's a great day. She's got no problems. Why doesn't she have problems? She's just trusting her dad. You see, that child, is, it's going to be okay. And because they put that faith in their protector, I'm just going to go on and just be happy with life and trust that everything's going to be okay. And that's, that is the pure person right there. We go, oh, well, they'll grow up. I hope not. <laughs> I hope they stay exactly the way they are. Because we become weighed down with worry and fear because we begin to doubt that God is going to take us through. Sins, addictions, because the flesh takes control. Meanwhile, our little kids are just happy as a lark, running around, and we should look at them and say, Lord, please make me like that. In fact, isn't it what the Bible says? Lest he become like one of these little children, you will not enter in the kingdom of God. See, salvation requires you to get to that place of trust. If you're not to that place of trust, are you saved? Never trusted Christ. (laughs) You understand? So, when you're acting like yourself, you're joyful. When you're not, you have pseudo-joy. You buy something, I'm happy for a while until the novelty wears off, now I'm not happy again. I got a big paycheck, I got to pay the bills, check is gone, I'm not happy for the next two weeks until I get my next check. Pseudo-joy. Hey, man. I'll tell you something. I'll tell you when you're mature. When you've got nothing to your name, you've got no more money in the bank, 
And you know what? Saying, Lord, it's okay. I'm just going to do what you've asked me to do. I'm not going to become angry. I'm not going to turn. I'm not going to let the flesh make statements and vows. All you're doing is you're locking yourself into the next defeat. Amen. Letter D, many times people define their lives by their baggage and do not see who God made them to be. This is very common. People wear masks because they relate their failures and disappointments to their identity. Instead of accepting forgiveness for their sins, realizing that we're corrupt and we'll make mistakes and so forth, we begin to identify ourselves based upon the failures that we've made. And by the way, it's not only that for ourselves, we do that to others. You go to the scriptures, what happens is you'll begin to see Jesus. Here he's sitting there with Peter. Peter's saying, Jesus, I'll never let you get arrested and go to the cross. And he says, Peter, before the cock crows three times, you're going to deny me. This is a Christ denier sitting next to Jesus Christ. What if I said there was a Christ denier sitting beside you? How would you look at that person? You know how he looked at him? He didn't look at Christ denier. He didn't even look at him in his statement he was making right there. You know where he saw him? At the end of the line. Folks, you would do well. (laughs) See, I don't have a luxury of cutting everybody off here that has a problem. Because it'd be a very lonely church. Because it'd be empty. I wouldn't even be here. Amen. You understand that? People have problems. Some of them are drastic. Some of them are smaller. If I allow myself to identify the person with their sin or failure, I will not be able to see them other than that, ever. Which will cause me to cut them off. And if that's the way I'm supposed to do it, then I ask, why didn't Jesus take Peter by the back of the neck that day and throw him into hell? In fact, he took a lot of time bringing to the point, Peter, lovest thou me? After he denied him three times, lovest thou me? Oh, you know I love you. And, and he broke him. He just kept asking, lovest thou me, Peter? Three times he did that. Do you love me? Three times he asked him. Remember, you denied me three times. The third time, Peter says, you know I love you. You know everything. You know everything, God. I can't defend myself anymore. Then he looks at him, go feed my lambs. See, that's what Jesus saw. Folks, this self-righteous Christianity today, shame on you. Shame on you. I do not, as a pastor, have the luxury to cut people off because they have sins and problems. What I try to do is instill in my heart the same thing Jesus did when he looked at Peter. And I look at that person and I say, Lord, 
This person can do great things for you. And I can see them do it. That's a spiritual gift that you need. That's a, that's a vision you need to capture that is based in Christ. But this self-righteous Christianity, man, we got to stop. You are just as bad as anybody else in this room. You are no better. Stop looking down at them. Start looking at them the way Jesus would look at them. Amen? Now, I understand as a pastor, there comes a time where someone's behavior, because they will not deal with the problem, are going to hurt people. That's when we step in and deal with it. Do you understand? Folks, I've got to be careful with people. I can't just cut them off. And it's easy sitting back there and telling, oh, pastor, why? you come up here. Let's, put it, let's hang it on your shoulders with fear and trembling where you have to meet God for the people, where you have to meet God for the patience you extended to people and, and how much time you gave them to become what God wants them to be. There's a great responsibility. And that's why the Bible says, seek not to be many masters. Greater is the condemnation. I carry that. I carry it. Amen? And all of us carry it in some way. You carry it for your family. You carry it on the job site. You carry it as a church member. But I carry it as a pastor. And there's only one. I can't run away and throw it on someone else and say, you deal with it. (laughs) That'd be me. (laughs) That'd be my running away from my problems. Amen? Pastors can't do that. We have got to deal with our issues. You understand? Amen? That's why you don't choose pastoring as a job, (laughs) as a career choice. Anybody that wants to be a pastor as a career choice, say, what's wrong with your head? You willing to go somewhere not knowing what you're going to get paid, not knowing what kind of benefits you're going to have, whether you'll be able to take care of your kids, you've got to trust God with it the whole time. Can you do that? Oh, I know the pastors today, I'll take the pastorate. If I get two weeks of holidays every year, paid. If I don't have to clean the church house, I will not do bathrooms. <laughs> Somebody else is cleaning the building. I know a pastor that did that. He made a contract. And here I am as a pastor. I'm going there and I'm saying, man, the only reason this church is going on is because I'm willing to stay even though there's nothing (laughs) that's being offered. Once we can make demands like that as pastors, there's something wrong with our church. (laughs) There's something really wrong with it. Anyways, let's move on. Number three, mature people return to joy from upset emotions. They return to joy. Mature people share joy with others. Being stoic and rarely showing emotion is not a sign of maturity. Okay? Uh, in the, I think it was the first century, second century, there was a man by the name of Stoic. And the whole movement that born out of it was because of him. 
he developed a religion where he thought, if I can just shut down emotions, kind of like Spock. If I can shut down emotion, that is the spiritual status to be. And, and actually, the world believes that. That's why they give you pills to shut down your emotions. Stoicism. That's what you call it. But being stoic does not mean that you're mature. It just means you've just shut down your emotions. And maybe you look like you've got things in control, but it's just another effort of the flesh to control your pain. Amen? Happy-go-lucky people are not necessarily mature. Oh, that person, he's happy all the time. He must be right with God, not necessarily. That can be another front. Always happy. Always The joke teller in the room. Here, let me show you a magic trick. <laughs> Center of the party. <laughs> that doesn't mean you're mature. Now, there's times you may be happy, times that you're uh, exuberant in your fellowship, whatever it is. I don't know. But many times it's a cover-up. That's why a lot of these comedians that are out there, and they, they're comedians, they're very successful, but they're completely miserable. And many of them commit suicide. Because it's just a cover-up of the pain they've never dealt with. They've never had someone with truth going to them saying, let me help you. Amen. In fact, some of them like it because it makes them who they are, and so they won't give it up. I've met a lot of people that didn't want to change because they didn't know how they would be like if they did change the way God wanted them to. They're so used to being the way they are, they couldn't imagine being some other way. <laughs> so they shut themselves down. That's another, that's called a secondary lie. That's another wall you build around your initial lie to keep you locked in, you know. Well, I'm afraid what will happen if I do change. Or I'm afraid what's going to happen if I do remember that memory. I'm, I, I don't want to go there, you know. Building walls against walls. Amen. So if you're helping somebody, what you're trying to do is tear them down again. <laughs> one by one. And sometimes you do that. You, you can't even get to the core issue. You're dealing with their secondary lies. Some of them are, Pastor, I'm scared you're going to think I'm a fool. I'm scared you won't like me if I tell you this. That's a wall they build around their lie. You know, pride can be a part of that. So, um, mature people do not allow negative emotions to control them, though they will have them. They will have them. We do have negative emotions as mature people, but our emotions won't control us. We deal with it. And that keeps us being who we're supposed to be in every situation. Amen? Um, I think that's all the time we have for today. I have a, another section on how do, how do I return to joy. I'll just give you these three points. Validate. That means you need to learn what the emotion you are feeling really is. Okay? What is that emotion? Anytime I'm, I'm meeting with somebody, I'll try to determine what it is you're feeling. Because that's going to tell you what the problem is. Validate the emotion. Um, the emotion is not your enemy. <laughs> that's not your enemy. Uh, the pain you experience is the most honest part of your life. Because at least what it's doing is telling you exactly what you believe. 
even though what you believe may be wrong. So I'm scared I'm going to die, <clears throat> and so I'm very fearful. Well, that fearfulness is an honest emotion based on what I believe. Amen? I believe I'm going to die, and I'm scared. So once I know that this person is scared and they're fearful, now we can direct it back to the lie and deal with it. But we have to validate the emotions. We can say, oh, no, no, you don't feel that way. Yes, they do. It's based on what they believe. Amen? I've had somebody come, I feel like I'm going to die, preacher. <laughs> fearful, scared. You have to validate that. You have to, uh, number two, you have to comfort them in that. Now, comfort them isn't stroking them in their bondage. It means we need to make those emotions smaller. Amen? So if it's a big fear, we have to determine, is this a big fear? Yeah, let's, let's shrink that thing. Let's get it down. <laughs> and ultimately, we get it down to nothing when the truth enters in. So that's our whole thing. We have to comfort that person, bring comfort by eliminating the emotion. All right? Uh, we have to reaffirm the truth about their situation. You're not in danger. You're okay. You're, you're protected. You're all right. That way you can help them think through their process, what they're going through, what you're going through. Or you can say, you're not losing your mind. I think I'm going crazy. No, you're not. It's okay, <laughs> you know. Comfort them. This situation is too much for me to handle. Too much. That's where you can take scripture and say, no, there's no temptation taking you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful. For with the temptation, he has also given us a way to escape. Amen. Never can you be overwhelmed when you're a child of God. All right. Um, consider new perspectives. So reaffirm the truth about the situation. Consider new perspectives. Uh, that means you've got to break the line of thinking that this person has. They're thinking in a certain vein. They can't break out of it. It's like a groove. This is the way I think. You've got to try to bring in a new perspective that knocks them out of that groove. Well, have you ever considered, my wife does this with me a lot, <laughs> because I'm thinking a certain way. She says, have you thought about this? I said, oh, no, I haven't. Well, I'm so busy thinking one direction that I need someone else to give me a new perspective. Oh, yeah, that's probably what happened. And then everything calms down, <laughs> you know, because I'm just thinking where I'm at, what I'm feeling. My perspective is just one direction. So somebody needs to come in and redirect, give a new perspective on that problem. And so that's something you can do to help yourself and help others. Amen. And number three, provide real help. Oh, uh, go, go and be full and be warmed. Have faith in God. <laughs> Little cliches, trust God, it's going to be okay. No, you help them. You help them. And people need more than just, well, you just read your Bible. I know some preachers, they, they don't believe in counseling. They don't believe in talking with people because if you just read your bible and go to church you'll be right with god well sorry that's not my experience no there's a lot of people that go to church all the time and even read their bibles and they're not right with god because there's stuff in them think about this if you're believing a lie and that lie is your truth how are you ever going to realize it's a lie because it's become your truth so you're sitting there you're saying oh this i'm I believe in truth, you know, and so nothing is being triggered, you know, until someone 
until something happens, you start evaluating these little situations that take place in the home, with your wife, on the job, and realize, man, there is something here. And then someone gets a facilitate where they come alongside you and help you understand that what you're actually believing is not true. But this is the way I've always been. Isn't that it? Us as Mennonites are bad for that. It's the way it's always been. That seems to just lock out everything we don't want except for what we want. <laughs> you know, We want this, and it doesn't matter what you say, even though the Bible says it, because it's always been like this. See, that's a lie. The fact of the matter, it's not always been like that. That was a lie that got introduced into our people many generations ago. When Menno Simons even broke off from the Catholic Church, he didn't believe that. <laughs> he preached in Baptist churches. He baptized by immersion. He was baptized by immersion. He would look at Mennonite churches and say, today if he'd be walking around, what are you guys doing? And that's my name on your church? <laughs> Sorry. I think uh, Martin Luther would be the same thing. The Lutheran church? He'd look in there and see the idols. Didn't I leave this stuff? Amen? <laughs> we tend to go back when we start a religious movement in man. Amen? You make your movement based in a man, Lutheranism, even Presbyterian, John Calvin, Mennonite, a man. It always goes back to where it came from. That's why we didn't come from that. We're not Protestants, not Reformers. We've just always been, <laughs> since Jesus said, upon this rock, I'll build my church. Amen. All right, and so, um, well, I hope I'm not, I am keeping you late. Validate, comfort, and then recover. Recover. Communication problems in a marriage are probably a lack of understanding the need to validate how someone feels. That's very important. Us men, we're very logical. So our wives, they tell us something where they're feeling and we're trying to figure out how to fix it. Well, let me just get my toolkit, my glue and my nails, my hammer, and we're just going to fix this once and for all because I just, I just don't have time for this. <laughs> I got stuff to do. There's a hockey game on for crying out loud. You know what I mean? That's the way we are. We're terrible at validating the emotions of our wife. So, you know what? I know exactly. I understand what you're feeling there. Not fixing. No toolbox. What? No toolbox? No toolbox. No toolbox. You know, just validate and comfort. Comfort. Bring it down. Right? Find some truth to bring down that feeling, you know. And then recovery takes place. You know, when a child skins his knee, you validate that there is a painful experience. Oh, that doesn't hurt. <laughs> Don't be stupid. It, it hurts the kid. He's crying, you know. The blood coming from him is going to hurt a little bit. So you don't, to toughen up your kids, you don't lie to them. Well, we'll teach you how to be tough. No, that's not what you do. You validate it. Yes, you skinned your knee. It has some pain. But what you do is you come and you say, you know what? It's going to go away. It's going to get better. Let's get to your band-aid. Let's clean it out and put a band-aid on. It's going, to, it's going to be better. No problem. 
Now there's some parents, oh, blood, ah, they grab it into the car, to the hospital. You're messing up your kid. You're messing up your kid. You don't make something big. See, what we try to do, we validate what took place, we bring it down. We don't say, oh, look at this, and then escalate it. That's what, bring, that's what causes strongholds in children. They become fearful, anxious, because we're the ones that are freaking out, <laughs> you know. All right. Um, you comfort, not by blowing the situation up with panic or being overly sympathetic. Oh, my poor, oh, oh, oh. Turning him into a wuss, stop that. <laughs> you understand that? Validate, comfort, but none of this stroking and, you know, oh, that doesn't make you a good parent. Maybe to you, you feel it's not. You're actually causing them to become so dependent upon you that they'll never function. They'll never function. You've got to be real. Truth. Amen. Everybody gets bumps. It's a normal part of life. It's going to get better. I understand it hurts, son, but here's a band-aid. Let's go. (laughs) Amen. Just get it all moving. And you know what takes place then? Recovery. Recovery takes place. But recovery does not take place when we escalate. No recovery. All right? And so, uh, like I said, comfort is not stroking people. It is making the problem seem less than it is. We do not feed the victim mentality. Amen. It is when the emotion lessens by truth given that the child recovers. Otherwise, the child is still emotional and may get worse. So if your child is continuing to be emotional, then you know something isn't being handled right. Because that emotion should be lessening. And if it's growing, then you're doing something wrong. It's being escalated somehow. All right? Do you understand what I'm saying there? (laughs) All right. Okay. Um... Oh, I wish I had some more time. I really do. Learning appreciation to grow joy. If I don't do this, it's going to be incomplete, folks. Please, have mercy on me, please. You can, you can dock my pay. <laughs> Learning appreciation to grow joy. How do I grow joy now? How do I... Because when I grow joy, my real personality comes out they're both connected amen the two greatest powers in a relationship are appreciation and resentment those are the two appreciation will attract others resentment will repel two big powerful things in your relationship so if you're resenting your wife you're pushing her away if you're appreciating her you're drawing her closer all right, so learning appreciation, this, was, this is what grows joy in your life. So you can focus on your resentment and continue to repel others and experience negative emotions, or you can learn to appreciate and grow your joy to become more of who you are. And so I'm going to give you four simple things. I'm not, it's not long points, but just simple things. Number one, gratitude. Show gratitude. I've learned that for myself. 
I've learned for myself, I need to be thankful for things. That's why I do that. I come to church and I talk about being grateful for the church. I thank you for coming. It's because it helps me. (laughs) Being grateful helps me rise above all the problems and all the things that may appear in a church setting and so forth. I've got to be grateful. (laughs) Amen. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. It's based on the past and present uh, for what someone really means to you today. The past and present. That's what gratitude deals with. It doesn't deal with future yet, but it deals with the past and the present. So look back. If you've got some problems in the past, you've got to be thankful. If you cannot be grateful in your childhood how you're brought up for your parents, you will have negative emotions abiding and living there. And the reason is because God won't be there. You'll never have gratefulness if God is not there. If God is there, immediate gratefulness fills that area. Amen. So you got to ask God, where were you? (laughs) Where were you, God, when I went through that? And be serious about it. Seek him. And he will tell you exactly where he was. And then you say, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you that you were there, because it could have been much worse. And now I've got gratefulness flowing out of that memory, out of those situations in my life. Amen? So gratitude is very important. Reflect on what you have to be grateful for right now, all the time. That's why at church we do that. What do we got to be happy for? What do we got to be thankful for? We got to constantly remind ourselves, and we got to ask our children, and ask our wife, and ask our what are you thankful for? Aren't you glad that God's given us this place in this town, and we're living right here? Aren't you glad the weather was so good today, or when it rains? Aren't you glad it's raining today? <laughs> you know, whatever. You've got to be grateful. If you're an ungrateful person, you're in bondage. Amen. The second thing is anticipation. Gratefulness looks to the past and present. Anticipation looks for sources of joy concerning the future. Amen? What are you anticipating? Well, I'm going to be a millionaire. (laughs) I'm sorry. That may not come to pass. Amen? So that may not be a very good source of joy. There are some things that you can bank on from the scripture about the future amen looking unto jesus the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was what set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is set down the right hand of the throne of god so what he did is he's he's going through this cross enduring the word enduring means bearing up under the load he's carrying this heavy load that he chose to carry it's not like it was chained to him and he couldn't fight it. And, uh, oh, I wish there was... No, no, he said, I want this on me. And the reason why I can do this, because I'm looking ahead and I am seeing Ferdinand saved. I'm seeing him and Lou sitting in church, learning the word of God. Jesus said, this is why I'm carrying the cross. I'm seeing Levi and... Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Duke sitting on the front row of the church, them getting saved. Duke was saved a couple weeks ago. See, Jesus, when, when he was carrying that cross, he's for the joy that was set before me, he saw Duke. Oh, I'm going to carry this thing. I'm not going to drop this thing. Amen. There's only one way you're going to make it through your problems of life is if you've got something set for the future. If you have no anticipation... 
you are going to become depressed. And I'm sorry, depression is based on a wrong view of future things. A wrong view of future things. I guarantee you, anybody who's depressed, that they were saved, if I'd say, Jesus is coming back in five minutes, oh! <laughs> they would have the happiest five minutes of their life. No depression. Well, where's the depression? <laughs> so much for Dr. Doolittle out there that told you you couldn't be free of it. It's based in anticipation. What you anticipate for the future. That's where faith is also connected because faith takes you to the end. Faith is not about why. It's not about, oh, Jesus is going to raise up all my friends from the dead today. <laughs> you know, we're going to heal all of our sicknesses because if he doesn't, we don't have enough faith because faith has to be so wide that he does all these great miracles. Jesus says, your faith doesn't have to be that wide. He says, if you had a faith of the grain of mustard seed, you'd say to yonder mountain. I like how he said yonder. Because faith has nothing to do with this way. Faith has everything to do with that way. Amen. But our churches today, they're teaching us, faith is, oh, if I don't have enough faith in you, no, no. My faith sometimes is this skinny, but it's there. Amen. Sometimes my faith is this fat. Oh, I'm doing good today, but all I know is my faith is going on. It's continuing till Jesus comes. That faith linked with anticipation, linked with joy of future things and what God has for me and for my family and for what he wants to do in the church and how, what he wants to do in Calgary and in Airdrie and just looking forward to the next soul that's going to get saved. For me, that's, hey, this is great. I'm going to endure some things here because there's still some people that I know are going to get saved through the ministry of Airdrie Baptist Church, so I will not quit. That's what happened when Jesus was on the cross. Amen. This is how you get your, re your joy returning to you. You've got to anticipate. <laughs> Gratitude, anticipation. Number three is memories. Memories. Recall moments of joy in your life. Keep those very close to your heart. Amen. In fact, come up with a top five list of positive memories to focus on when you're not thinking right. And start thinking about those memories again. What did God do for you? How did he deliver you? How did he provide? How did he protect? Amen? Good things that have happened. You know? The fourth point is experiences. This is making memories in the present. This is like going for walks with people, spending time. <laughs> with me, I enjoy, you know, I'm looking forward. I am anticipating in the future summer here for you folks to come down to our house. We're going to have a fire. We're going to have a volleyball net set up there. We're just going to kind of hang out, you know, drink pop and water and Tim Horton's coffee and whatever else you drink except alcohol. Amen. And, <laughs> and you know what? People, the young people can play volleyball. I'm going to watch them. <laughs> I'm going to watch them play. They're going to be playing football on the side. To me, I mean, that's great. And those type of things, as we do them, oh, we're going to have banquets. 
I've had people say, are we going to do more banquets? As if, no, no, that was the last one. <laughs> you missed it, I'm sorry. You'll never have another one again. <laughs> oh, no, we'll have lots of banquets, amen? These are anticipations and memories that we're going to create together. That's why it's important to be together and, and to do things together because these become your points of joy in your life when you go through things, you can say, oh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I, you know, many times even children that go the wrong way because they have already had in their mind their love for their family or love for what they had, they begin to evaluate. They say, you know what? I can't give up my family for all this garbage. And it many times becomes the thing that drives them back to do right. Amen? Because there's been so many good things. So that's why it's important for us as families to always do good things with our family. Build memories, connect hearts, because that's going to be what draws them back. Amen? The time together. So memories, very important experiences. And then let me leave this last one. It's songs. Songs. Folks, if your home is tumultuous... Or it's, it's eggshellish. Amen. Play some good music. Let music fill that home. It's amazing when kids are getting wild and they're all running around. <laughs> you know, kids get. You do kids do that? Mine are all the time just going. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> oh boy, we're streaming this. <laughs> Oh, I'm stupid. Anyways. <laughs> when, when, your, when your home is, is tumultuous and the kids are wild, I'll tell you what, you just put on some nice music and watch. And all of a sudden you'll find your children just mellowing right out. Because music has power. I mean... No heavy metal music. <laughs> That's what they'll do. No, we don't do that. Good godly music speaks to their spirit, delivers a message to their soul, and they're saying, you know what? I'm just going to relax a little bit here. Start organizing the thoughts. Amen. Music is very important. If you're struggling in your home, you've got emotional things going on, put good music on. You know, it'll help you. If you're going to have a conversation with someone and you, you're scared about how it's going to happen, you're walking in eggshells, put some music on. Not blasting, but, you know, nice. And that'll help that conversation be a little more manageable. Okay? So those are five things that you can do to help restore joy into your life. Amen?